As I've been thinking about Mother's Day today, as I've been also thinking, we did this uh, parent dedication, parent commitment thing with the kids on stage. It's got me thinking a lot about my kids. I have two. Uh, My son is nine. My daughter is six. And I think about the world that we live in. Parents, have you ever thought about the world that we live in and you just want to look at your kids and be like, my bad. (laughs) Like, you could have not been here, but you are. Sorry. Um, It's your world to inherit. It's a crazy world that we live in, right? Like, I just give you a couple of buzzwords just to to get you on the same page as me, okay? Here's one, ISIS. Yeah, that's fun. Here's another one, Donald Trump, right? (laughs) I don't know. Here's another one, Walmart, or sorry, ruined the joke, Target bathrooms. Yeah, where's that going to, here's one that's big in our city right now, Uh, chicken wings. Let me explain that one. Did you hear about the lady last week who got the wrong chicken wing order? Yeah, and like she went and got a gun. Okay, is it too much to ask? I wanted boneless chicken wings, okay? But, you know, that's, but that's the world that we live in. Crazy things happen. And so when we look at our kids and we look at the world around us, it's like, what, what are we supposed to do in all this craziness? On Sunday mornings at church, we gather together to look at the Bible and see what does God want us to do with our time, with our lives, with our relationships. And um, so it's got me wondering this. When we look at the crazy world that we live in, How should Christians respond to all that? How should we respond to ISIS, to elections, to uh, violence around the world, to confusion, to social uh, issues in the world? Like, how should we respond to that, that, to all that? Should we run and hide? Should we picket and protest? Should we just live and let live, right? Just let it it go? Should we just turn a blind eye, maybe sweep it under the rug? Like, what should we do with all these things? At Venture Church, we love to look at the Bibles for the answers to life's most important questions. And so uh, what we're going to start today is a multiple-week study through one of the most uh, meaty books and, and sections of the Bible, a few chapters in the book of Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because it was a sermon that Jesus preached, and he did it kind of on the side of a hill, kind of on a mount. So it's the Sermon on the Mount. It could have been called a lot of different things. You could call the Sermon on the Mount Christianity 101. There's just a lot of things Jesus says, like, this is just what you should be. This is how you should act. Uh, you could call it the Christian Manifesto. Maybe you should call it the best sermon ever preached. Uh, but what we're going to call it is Beautiful Contrast. Beautiful contrast because Jesus talks about culture and and the direction that the world is headed. And then he contrasts the world with his kingdom. And it's a beautiful contrast. When we see the difference between what God expects and what the world expects, we see that there's a difference. But there's a beauty in that difference. And so that's what we'll be uh, spending. Uh, We'll be there for five weeks, uh, for a little while, for five weeks. Then we're going to take a little bit of an intermission and talk about something else. And then we'll come back and we'll spend five more weeks talking about the Sermon on the Mount. That's how meaty it is. And we could even go longer if we wanted to. Uh, So if you've got a Bible today, what I want to encourage you to do is go ahead and grab it. i got mine on stage. Um, And and this is my challenge for us for the duration of this series. I want to challenge you, if you didn't bring yours with you today, if you don't have one, that's okay. I want to challenge you to bring your Bibles to church. Okay, We're going to be reading from Jesus' words. Uh, This is kind of the red letter section of Scripture. If you have a Bible with red letters in it, uh, just so you know what that means, those are words that that Jesus spoke. And so I really feel like God is telling us we need to get in some of the red letters of Scripture over this summer. And so we're kind of starting now, but this is going to get us through most of the summer. Bring your Bibles. I normally just read my Bible stuff right from my iPad here, but I'm even going to have it on stage because I want to try to lead by example. And we're going to be in Matthew 
chapter 5. So if you want to go and flip over there, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament of the Bible, which is about the last third of your Bible. Um, and it is one of the books that is about the life and teachings of Jesus. It's actually a biography on the life of Jesus. And we're going to be in chapter 5. All right, and so here, having said all that, I want to jump into Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to read the first six verses uh, today, but we're actually going to just look at these first two right now as we get going. Um, if you don't have a Bible today or if you don't own one, I want you to know that we've got several that are spread around underneath the seats here in the room, and those are free for the taking. If you need a Bible, take one of those, keep it. Uh, we want it to be a gift to you. Um, or you could look up a Bible app on your phone or, of course, look at the words behind me on the screen. Uh, but we're going to jump in here, and we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 of the Sermon on the Mount. Here we go. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This little opener here uh, gives us kind of a a cool picture of what's happening in Jesus' life. Uh, Prior to this moment, Jesus had already been traveling around the countryside. He'd been going from village to village, and he had amassed quite a following. Uh, There were scores of people that were coming to hear what Jesus had to say, and and this is why. Because everywhere Jesus went, he did amazing things. Jesus is performing miracles. He's like healing people. He's, uh, at some points, he's raising people from the dead. It's incredible. And the things that he says are unlike things that anyone else is saying. And he's speaking in ways so that the other teachers in the Jewish communities are like, Man, he's good. (laughs) He's good. He knows his stuff. People are following him because they want to understand what it is that this Jesus guy is all about. Uh, Jesus finds his way to the side of this hill, and uh, and it's a good place for him to teach from. Remember, this is the first century A.D., so no microphones, no PA systems, no speakers. And so it's a natural amphitheater. So he's standing on the side of this hill, and there are people around, uh, Jewish rabbis had a lot of tendencies. Uh, A rabbi is a teacher. And Jesus was a Jewish uh, rabbi. And one of the tendencies that they had was to sit down at the beginning of a class. And this would kind of initiate the teaching session. The official teaching is about to begin. And he would sit down. And so it's really cool that in this little verse it says that Jesus took a seat. He takes the posture of a rabbi and the teaching begins. And so we're going to look at a couple of verses here. The first few things he says in this big old sermon he's preaching. In verse 3. We'll read through verse 4. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He starts out with kind of this proverbial, kind of poetic opener here. Uh, and this little section, it's got a name, it's, it, and you might even say it in the little header of your Bible, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. We don't use that word very often, Beatitudes, and it, and it means basically this. These are attitudes you should be. It's not good grammar, but it's good translation. These are things that you should strive to have in your life. These are attitudes that you should shoot for. Uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 5, there are eight Beatitudes. We've looked at the first four. In fact, uh, that's as far as we're going today. I've read these four verses, and and these uh, six verses, and that's all the verses we're going to read from today. Uh, we're actually going to take a look at the other four next week as part of what's happening next week. But these first four kind of give us a formula. All right, so here's the formula. It's basically this. Blessed are the blank, for they will blank. It's a formula. Jesus gives this formula. Uh, that word blessed is the word we use, you know, bless his heart, and that's the southern way of saying How stupid was he, right? But it's the idea, bless his heart. And the idea of a blessing is to receive favor from someone, in this case, from God. So blessed are those who, blank, for they will, and then there's some sort of a a promise or a reward. 
Now, when you look at all of these uh, in, in sequence, it, it, it could kind of be like you're looking at these and you're like, which one of these am I good at? Cool, here's my reward. Like when my kids do some incentive program, they go to the library sometimes. If you read this many books, you can get a prize. Or we went to uh, Airly Gardens this week. Have you seen the, the new frog exhibits? Like these, these, these cool statues there. It's like you find all the frogs, you get a sticker, or you get like a little toy or something like that. And so sometimes we read the Bible like that. We're like, let's see, what, what do I want out of this? Okay, blessed is this. Oh, I want that, kingdom of heaven. That sounds good to me. I think I'll do that thing. But what's interesting about these Beatitudes is that these are attitudes we should be. This should be a description of what happens in your life as Jesus comes in and, and remodels things for you. And so it's not a pick and choose. It's not a one or the other. It's a kind of like, we need to grow in all of these. And because we are, this is kind of the natural end result. Um, and so the, the, verse of, uh, the, the list of eight Beatitudes is kind of, if you read it, they break into two. The first four deal with our attitude and our posture towards God. And the second, deal with our attitude and our posture towards people around us. So that's just something, food for thought, if, if you're going to read through that some this week. So let's break down those first four, and really that's going to be the content of our message today. Breaking down these first four. And what are these attitudes? As Jesus launches into this massive teaching that's going to encompass about three chapters of the book of Matthew, the most complete and the longest section of Jesus talking in the whole Bible, this is how he opens up. And we're just going to break down those first four Beatitudes. And so let's look at this first one here. It says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Dissect that a little bit. Notice Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor here in Matthew. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we're not talking about material things here. We're talking about something spiritual. And there's something in that. Because finding favor with God, being blessed by him, is a spiritual thing. And it begins when we understand our own spiritual poverty. When we understand that without him, we're nothing. What can we really do on our own? You can't earn God's love or his attention. You can't earn his blessings. The Bible says this about our good deeds. Okay, listen to this. This is, uh, this is from an Old Testament prophet. It says that our righteousness, our good deeds, our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. In other words, the best that we can do is nothing compared to how good he is. And so Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. When we realize our own spiritual poverty, when we realize that on our own we just really can't Reach up to God. Suddenly God honors us with his favor. It's this really cool trade. He says, finally, you get it. You, you understand. You get who I am. You need me. You can't do this on your own. Come into my kingdom. Receive my blessings. And in his kingdom, we fall under his protection, his benevolence. And then we can lay claim to his inheritance as citizens of his kingdom. Isn't it interesting? You go from a place of poverty to a place of great riches simply by acknowledging the fact that by myself, I can't do this. But God, with you, I have it all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what I've often heard and I love to call the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. When you look at the things that Jesus tells us that we should do, a lot of it is counterintuitive. The, 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 the last shall be first, and that to become the greatest, you must make yourself the least. Jesus is all about humility. He's all about us stepping out of the way. And it's this phrase that we get from the Bible that I must become less so that he can become more. It's recognizing, God, without you, I'm nothing. But with you, 
I've got everything I need. It's the upside-down kingdom. In the world's economy, we see the poor and the persecuted and the mourning. We see them as unfortunate, as not blessed, as messed up, as up a creek without a paddle. But in God's economy, the people who are meek become mighty. And the unfortunate become favored. And the least of these become influential. That's God's economy. That's the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. And it all begins when we understand this first beatitude. It's only in becoming humble before God that we can see what he's really able to do in our lives. And so with that as a launching point, let's look at the next three, okay? We got, we got three more to go through. Let's look at verse four. It says this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Have you ever known mourning? Known mourning? M-O-U, mourning? Sadness? I mean, I don't want to, like, take us to the the drain pipe right now and just like bring the whole thing down but like have you lost someone before have you have you had a relationship breakdown like so that's a piece of understanding mourning right there's this sadness it's this longing for for completeness uh maybe uh maybe on a lighter note maybe you're more like me like you're proficient at losing things like you just like where are my car keys and if you ever lost like a hundred dollar pair of sunglasses you understand mourning right <laughs> not not so much here in the heart but kind of like back here in the wallet. Like we have all kinds of different levels of mourning. There's this kind of uncomfortableness. There's this pain. There's this loss. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that Jesus is talking about losing your car keys or your sunglasses here. I actually don't even think he's talking about losing a loved one. But I think that when we understand mourning in that way, we can take ourselves to kind of a mental space where we can understand what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. First, yes, God can bring comfort when we're sad. If you've ever have lost someone, I've met some people, some amazing people, who in the loss of a loved one have only been able to find peace in knowing that God is good. And like this is the only constant in my life. And so, yes, God does bring that. We talked about Isaiah chapter 40 two weeks ago, and it started out like this. Comfort, comfort. Like God brings comfort in our time of loss. But here, we were just talking about spiritual poverty. Like in the first beatitude, and then we're moving on into the state of mourning. And I think that the transition that can be happening there is to see that our mourning is over a spiritual state. What if what Jesus is talking about is sadness that we experience when we realize that we've let him down? What about if it's mourning over our sin? About our shortfalls with him? I think this is a mourning of repentance. It's realizing that, God, I'm nothing without you, and with you I have everything. Man, I'm a long way from making you happy with my life. And that makes me sad. I've dealt with so much sin in my own life, things that, that I would be ashamed just to share openly. I've shared with lots of the men in this room things that have been part of my life that have pulled me away from God. Just shameful things. And you, you probably have too, right? And those things still plague me to this day, and sometimes... I've realized my sin, but I only feel bad about it because I got caught. You know, my, you know what I mean? Like, you only feel bad because you're like, oh, I hope nobody finds out about this. It's like when you have these kids, and, and, and they're like in a classroom or something. We're in elementary school here. I'm sure this happens like every single day. And one kid gets in trouble for like getting in a fight with another kid, and the other kid, they get together, and the teacher breaks it up and says, stop it, Billy. Tell Sammy you're sorry. And then they do this. They, don't, they, they look down their feet. They don't make eye contact. They're like, sorry, you know, and they like storm off in the other direction. Are they sorry? No, there's no sorrow there. There's no, why? Because there's no mourning. 
they don't think that what they did was all that bad. They're just upset that they got in trouble for it. See, the motivation for that sorry is about me saving face. But suddenly, when I understand my status with God, that mourning takes a shift. That repentance takes a shift. And I realize what I've done doesn't just hurt me. A lot of times with our sin, we say things like, it's not hurting anybody else. Not true. It breaks God's heart when we sin. And so Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Remember those two kids that were having the argument. I've got two kids of my own I mentioned earlier. And um, (laughs) sometimes there's moments where they've messed up. And they come to me. And I can see that they're really upset about what's happened. And they said, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I messed up. I let you down. I did what you told me not to do, whatever it is. Now, if you have children, and you can see that your children are truly repentant of the thing that they did, what do you do when they come to you and tell you that they're sorry? You flip out of them, you yell, you start kicking and throwing stuff. You shouldn't. <laughs> Maybe you do. We're not perfect, are we? But I'm most likely in those times to get on a knee and say, hey, it's okay. It's okay, bud. And this is crucial. We're going to get through this together. When we come to God like that, he has already been to knee. He came down as Jesus. He has already come down to say, I've got a way for you. And he pulls us in like this, and he says, it's okay, buddy. It's okay, babe. We'll get through this together. Blessed are those who mourn. What do they receive? Comfort. And that's what God specializes in. Showing us that there's another way. The apostle Paul is this great teacher, and this is a guy who came from a lot, a lot of sin, and God redeems him, and he becomes this great missionary throughout the world. He talks about this mourning. He calls it sorrow. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, it says this. You can see on the screen behind me. It says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no Regret. The mourning is part of what brings reconciliation between us and God. And we can step away from that mourning, and just sometimes just a few moments later, sometimes it takes a few days, sometimes after we work through it, it takes a little while. But then we go, on the other side of mourning is joy because it's fulfillment, because we're connected with God, because God has forgiven us. Best of those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Maybe that comfort is just what you're looking for today. Maybe you've got something going on in your life and and you're not too proud of it or you're not sure how you want to manage it or how you want to deal with it. I want you to know this. If you bring that to God, he's got forgiveness for you. And beyond the forgiveness is joy and most importantly, comfort. We've gone through two Beatitudes. We've got two more. You got enough attention for that? Let's try. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What do you think of when you think of somebody that's meek? I was trying to like play that back in my mind this week as I was reading this and deciding what I want to say about it. And I got to be honest, uh, meekness um, is honestly, in my mind, I, I've been equating it with weakness. 
someone who's meek is often seen as weak. If someone was describing me and they said, oh, Chris, he's so meek, I'm not sure that I would take that as a compliment. Um, but, but as I dug into it a little bit more, I, I realized that I need to be challenged by the definition of that word and understanding it. Meekness is a word that's used several times to describe Jesus. Uh, and Jesus was anything but weak. He was someone who was willing to stand up to opposition. He was willing to do what was right when it needed to be done. Uh, the Greek word that's used here to, to translate into the word meek can also be translated as courteous, considerate, gentle, never weak. But in fact, this word is sometimes used to, uh, to describe a war horse in a battle. That war horse was meek. It's the idea of power under control. Something different there, isn't it? Because you think about this war horse, and he's well-trained. Did you watch the Kentucky Derby yesterday? Uh, I did. It's the one day a year where anybody in America cares about horses, and all of a sudden we forget again. There are people who do. But me, I'm like, oh, yeah. And then you talk, when you listen to these commentators, they talk about horses like they're people, and it's really amazing. Like, he's got such a great attitude this week. Uh, you know, he was up in the gym early this morning, uh, had a couple Gatorades. I think he's good to go. Um, but it's like there's commentators. Anyway, uh, now here's the thing. When I watch those horses, they are not strength under control. I, I wanted to call them that. I want to be like, these are things are strength under control, but these things are prima donnas. Like, like if, if like the climate is anyway uh, not theirs, they start bucking and screaming and, and freaking out. But a, a war horse, a war horse has to be in the midst of a battle. Okay, there's stuff going on all over them. Other horses are bumping into them. You got people with spears and stuff. People are screaming, spooking them and whatever. And this horse has to stay completely composed and under the direction of the person riding the horse. Now, take that word, meek. And overlay it on that concept. Strength under control. In the midst of battle, what is that horse doing? He's trusting the guidance of his rider. See, someone who is meek is not weak at all. They're self-controlled. They understand the time and the place to react. They know the way and the method to do the right thing in the right way. The person who is not meek is easily excitable. Uh, they run through life like a bull in a china shop. They're, they're, they leave this path of destruction behind him. These are the my way or the highway people. Uh, they're not courteous. They're arrogant. These people aren't considerate. They're rude. They're not gentle. They're brash. They're anything but meek. And Jesus is saying this. Listen, that's not the way of my followers. I want you to be under control of yourself. I want you to be trusting the guide. I want you to know that whichever way I tell you to turn, there's a reason for that. Stay cool under conflict. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This call to meekness, it grinds against our natural desire to be, you know, the Lord of my castle and in charge of my life and do what I want to do. Like that's, it kind of pushes against, and that's kind of the point. I think that's why Jesus talks about it so much. Us stepping back and being humble. Us letting him lead. The behavior of a meek person, though, is not determined by inner desires. A, a meek person's behavior is determined by the call of God. The beliefs of a meek person is not determined by what feels good or what's politically correct right now, but what does God teach and what is his truth? The attitude of a meek person is not determined by our circumstance or what's going on or, or the culture that we're living in. The attitude of a meek person is determined by the desires of God for our life. Suddenly becoming a meek person seems a lot more attractive to me. 
It seems like something I want to learn more about. It seems like something I want to strive for. Jesus talks about this concept a little later in the same book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, this is one of my favorite verses. I quote it all the time. He says this, uh, this word yoke that he's about to use, uh, picture a yoke is a thing that holds like um, a beast of burden to a plow or something. It's a thing they wear around their neck. But it was also the name for a group of teachings that a rabbi would have. So you would take on the yoke of a rabbi. In other words, I'm going to follow his way. I'm going to wear his yoke. I'm going to do the things he does. So listen to the things Jesus says here. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When we seek meekness, what we find is rest for our souls. What we find is connection with Jesus. What we find is, and according to Jesus here, we inherit the earth. There's, like, there's nothing you can't have. If you'll stick, stick, simply stick with me, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. So in these first few verses, it's crazy because we've transitioned from being uh, recognizing our own poverty, right? I'm poor, to being we've now inherited the earth. That's a big transition. I got nothing in my pocket, and now I've got everything. And this is the promise for someone who will follow God and seek him through Jesus. That's what he says. Listen, there's nothing that I will keep from you except for evil, except for harm, except for the things you don't want in your life. Seek me. God's way is a beautiful contrast to what the world offers. The world offers says, they say, work harder, work harder, work harder. And if you're lucky, at the end of your life, you might have a few pennies to retire with. And if that doesn't work out, guess what you can do? Work harder. Jesus said, you seek me first. And you'll have everything you need. There's one final beatitude that we look at. And to me, as I look through the four, it hits home the most with me. I mean, each one of these, like I said, you can't pick and choose. But there will be one that kind of lays a little heavier on you today. This is the one that really has changed my life. And this is what it says in verse 6. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. I'm going to read that again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Pause there. There's this conversation that happens in my house all the time, okay? Um, it's normally we're in the car, and we just left, like, I don't know, our kids have soccer practice or something, and we're in the car, and we're all hungry, and it's about dinner time, okay? And I look over at my wife, and I say, hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? And she says, I don't know, what do you want? Are you with me so far? Now, here's the thing. What she just did there was a trick question. Because it does not matter what I want for supper. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. I mean, not that she doesn't care, but it doesn't matter. What I realized after a long, long time with my wife is this, that now my job is I'm supposed to systematically name every single food we've ever eaten and see if one of those lines up with tonight's meal. Like, so, uh, pizza? No, we had pizza yesterday. Right, right, that was stupid. Uh, what was I thinking? Um, sandwiches? I don't know. I'm not really feeling sandwiches. Okay, so I go down every single food. Have you been there? You feel? No, it's not always my wife. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's our kids. But the point there is, like, we don't know what to eat. Now, another step aside, we're on number, number two here. This is very much a first world problem, by the way. Um, I've been to several third world countries, and they'd be like, wait, there's options for food? Like, we were just going to have rice again. Like, we'd, maybe that would be warm. I don't know. So, we're spoiled. I get it. But here's the thing. That whole conversation, has anybody else had that summer conversation? Like, what are we going to eat? I don't know. What are you going to eat? Back and forth, back and forth. I think it actually asks a deeper question. And it's the question that I want to ask you today. It's kind of the question I want to let kind of marinate with you, maybe all week. And here's the question. Ready? What are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? Like, not for lunch. You're probably thinking about that right about now. And your mom's waiting, and you want to go eat something that you put on a grill. I know. But what are you... 
What are you hungry for with your life? This 24 hours a day that you've been given, like what do you, what do you wake up going, oh, if I don't do that today, I'm not going to be filled. What are you hungry for? Jesus uses this word here. He says righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this word righteousness, uh, it, it's, a, you know, it's a churchy word, it's a religious word, but the word righteous means the state of being right, right? It's, I've, I've, I'm either, I've either got it figured out or I'm getting it figured out, but it's, it's rightness, righteousness. What if we chased after righteousness? The state of being right with God, not being a perfectionist, get over yourself, but instead of being right with God, the things he wants for our life, the things he created us for, what if we chased after righteousness like we were starving for it and couldn't get enough of it? Like if there was only a buffet of righteousness, oh my goodness, I would be so filled. My life would be complete. King David is in the Old Testament of the Bible, and he writes this. It's kind of this poetic picture. He's, he says, as a deer pants for streams of water. Imagine this deer, and he's running through the woods, and, and maybe he's just running because he's frolicking because deer's frolic. Or maybe he's being chased by a hunter. I don't know. But he's running. He says, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, oh God. Jesus is saying, if you want to be blessed by me, if you want to find favor in me, if you want to experience the life that I have to offer you, Hunger and thirst for righteousness. There have been too many times when I felt really hungry, and, uh, and I got some go-to snacks that I go to. You know, junk food. Like, I love me an ice-cold 20-ounce Coke in a bottle. Oh, my goodness. That's so good. And then a bag of jalapeno Cheetos. Life doesn't get better than that, right? I mean, it's like, oh, it's so good. I, I've had times where, like, I'm in a rush. I'm just like, okay, i got to grab a little snack. I'm at a, like, convenience store, like, boom, boom, boom. And I've had these road trips. You've been on these trips where you have to stop fast food after fast food after fast food after fast food. And now, here's the thing. Those things, they, they fill you for a minute. And, and you're like, okay, it's good, it's good. And then you, and, and, but you've gone several meals, and you realize you haven't had a vegetable in a long time. Really, you're having, like, trans fat and, like, whatever artificial thing is in there. And here's the truth. You're not being filled you're being fooled. Your body is starting to believe that it's eating food, but your systems are starting to shut down. And you get that little ache in your belly like it's Halloween, and you ate half the, bottle of, half the box of candy, and you weren't supposed to. And that's what happens when our bodies don't get in them what they're supposed to have in them. And this spiritual point could be made true, too. So often we seek after spiritual junk food. We're like, man, if just one more thing would fill me. Man, if I could just get this promotion at work, I'd be set. Man, if we could just finish this addition on our house. Oh, man, I got the, I got the throw pillows picked out. It's going to be so cute. Saw it on Pinterest. I'm going to put that junk. Man, we'll be so happy then. And if I could pass this class and if I could get this raise at work and if we could have this situation there and that and this and that, I'll just be filled. I'll be filled. I'll be filled. But it's junk food. It doesn't fill us, it fools us. Because if you've ever been down to the end of that road, it is a cul-de-sac, not an intersection. You're not going anywhere from there. You get to that point, you're like, I got it. Dang, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And then what do we do? We take a turn down something else. Jesus gets us. He says, I know you want to be filled I know you want to be full. I know you want to wake up in the morning and go, I'm ready for the day, and I want you to go to bed at night going, that was good. 
He says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean to feast on righteousness? Well, one place it starts is right here in our Bibles. God's given it to us several times. This is called food. It's called the bread of life. Why? Because it's the words of God. Jesus is in this epic battle with the devil one time. He said, man can't live on bread alone. Man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's life-giving, life-affirming, life-completing, life-filling words of God. That's one way to seek righteousness because we can know what he wants from us. The state of being right with him. Righteousness is being in community that lifts us up closer to God instead of, pull, instead of pulling us away. Righteousness is being a part of church. I loved having a conversation with my friend Dylan this week about church. And there's so many of us that feel like, you know what, I could do Christianity without church. Because Christianity is really a set of guidelines, right? Check, 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 check. I did it. And Dylan said this brilliant thing. Dylan said, if you think that you're missing the whole point of Christianity, the whole point of Christianity is family. It's about being here with each other, about growing together. You want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we do it together. And we come together, and if you've ever been one of those awesome moments with a Christian friend, and you're like, this is just good. If you haven't had that moment, man, I hope that you can. I hope that you can. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Maybe you've started to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Maybe you have, and you're tired of junk food in your life. Jesus is calling you. He's saying, come follow me. Come follow me. You'll be filled. If that's you, I, I want to invite you to come speak to me today before you leave, or really anybody that's like a volunteer at our church, and just say, listen, I, I want to learn more about this. Maybe you're ready to become a Christian. Um, the Bible teaches that when you do that, you kind of confess that that's what you want to do, and the next thing we see people do in the Bible is they get baptized. We can talk about that, uh, and, and that can be part of your life. Right now, you can make that change, and God says, I will fill you. And you know the other blessings? You'll receive the kingdom of God and the earth and a lot of other things because we've only gotten into the first four. If you're not there yet, you're not sure that you want to make this big step, I'm, I'm just glad you're here today. so awesome that you came. I just want you to be a part of our church family, like hang out with us, become friends with us, come get to know us some more, come play kickball with us next weekend. If nothing else, just stick around one more Sunday to see if God's got another word for you because I think that thing that we desire to be filled is in you too. Last week, I was able to go camping with my son's Cub Scout group, and, and uh, it was it was fun. I had a lot of fun. Now you got to imagine we were in a really big Cub Scout Scout pack, and so there's actually uh, dozens and dozens of elementary age boys. Now I don't know if you've ever done this, but when you set them all loose in the woods for three days. Pandemonium ensues. So there's all of us parents, and like, my boy's one of the older boys now. I remember when we were the littlest kids, and we were like, oh my goodness, they're going to die. Now we're just like, just be back by dinner. <laughs> and so they're all, it's crazy, and kids are playing football, and they're just they're cooking marshmallows like thousands of marshmallows got roasted and burned. And they're just doing all this pandemonium. It's crazy. It's yelling, and there's always, you, you took my shoe, and I didn't take your shoe. I only have two shoes. That's a real thing that I saw. And all this stuff's happening. It's crazy, it's crazy, it's crazy, it's crazy. That's scene one, okay? I'm just going to paint scene one for you. Now, I want to paint scene two. It was later, uh, I think it was Friday night, and uh, the kids were all playing um, Capture the Flag, which is just, in parent languages, go hide in the woods until it's bedtime. So they're hiding in the woods. And so we were sitting around the campfire, just me and a couple of parents. It was beautiful, man. 
absolutely silent. <laughs> Could see all the stars. No joke, I had a Coke and a bag of jalapeno Cheetos. Life was not getting any better for me right there. That's scene two, okay? Now, how would you, like, define scene one versus scene two? How, how could you put that into a couple of words? Uh, I could do it in two words. Beautiful contrast. And that's what Jesus offers. A beautiful contrast to the craziness of this world. And what I want to do with you over the next several weeks is look through Jesus' words and say, what can we do as people? Not to be different for difference's sake, but so that we can make a difference in the world. And we can be that beautiful contrast. Jesus came to the world to bring peace in the midst of chaos, righteousness to a world of evil, light to expose darkness, and blessings to those who seek him. And I want to be a church that brings the beautiful contrast to the craziness of this city. But it begins with some of the basic teachings of Jesus, with bending a knee of humility before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By owning up for the sin in our life with a broken heart, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. By surrendering to the will of God, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And by being God chasers in every way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray. God, you're good. I praise you for your glory, for your excellence, and for the example that you set in your teaching. Um, Sometimes we look at lists of things like this, and we get in the mindset of of religion, of checklists, and we're like, oh, I'm not good at that, so I must have failed you. And I guess maybe that's true, but what I love about you is your grace. And you say, no, I'm not looking for you to be perfect. I'm just looking for you to be willing. And so, Lord, I stand here before you willing, willing to be changed, willing to be uh, moved in my life, willing to be challenged. And I pray for our church family that you'll uh, teach each of us to do the same, that we can be a beautiful contrast in the city that we live in and in this world. Um, Thank you for the teacher. Thank you for his teachings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.